We're in a series about how God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Anybody got any weakness here? See, nobody ever feels competent. Nobody ever feels secure, gifted enough, talented enough, holy enough. And yet God reaches down and he says, when I grab a hold of you, whether it's weakness or a mess, I can make you very strong. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Most people don't think so. They think it's all for the talented, the gifted, those who are nobly intellectualized and nonsense. God just uses the foolish things to confound the mighty, just to show he's God. He likes to show off that way. So cheer up. And a lot of times in our day, people think the Bible is kind of a dull book. The book of Judges was to that audience in that day a lot more like what an action movie would be like in our day particularly from the Marvel superhero universe. And for this story, think about two characters in particular. Iron Man, who has an impenetrable suit made of iron, and Thor, the great superhero. And he's got a super weapon. Anybody remember what it was? A great hammer. So keep that in mind. Iron Man and Thor with his hammer. So in Judges, a lot like in an action movie, The heroes are basically fighting for the good side, but oh, they are flawed, and they're often prone to anger, sometimes ego, and sometimes the action in the stories is dark, morally corrupt, and ambiguous. So in the book of Judges, the bad guys are really, really bad. The book of Judges would have been read with the same kind of an excitement and delight by that ancient audience that we get in a great movie about Thor and Iron Man. But with the knowledge that behind the scenes, God was working in human history to teach very slowly this nation of Israel and eventually all humanity, there's a moral and spiritual reality underneath this world and that finding it and conforming to it is the ultimate battle for you and me in our world. Okay, here's the situation for our story. God has delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. You know that. They went through the wilderness for 40 years. They've now been brought into the promised land. They don't have any kings yet, but they've got a big problem. And in Judges 4, it says this, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's a reoccurring cycle in the book of Judges. Israel was brought into the promised land, but it gets idolatrous and corrupt. So God gives them over to their enemies. Now they suffer, and in their suffering, they finally cry out, God, help us. And God will send a deliverer called a judge in this book. And Israel gets liberated. Then they experience peace. Then they get prosperous. Then they get self-sufficient, and they forget about God. They get idolatrous again, and that cycle just keeps going over and over in the book of Judges. They don't learn anything. Well, we'll look at what happens in one particular cycle. There's like seven of them. So Israel is idolatrous. They forget about God, and they're corrupt. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, the Canaanites, they're the bad guys in this story. Now, in a good story, there's often an image that reoccurs. And you want to watch for it. And that's the case here. They're sold. They're given over into the hand of the enemy. And hand is a theme or an image you want to watch for in this story in a minute. Hand. 
King Jabin had a general named Sisera. Sisera is the arch villain in this story. So think Hitler, bin Laden, Stalin, somebody like that. And it says, because Sisera had 900 chariots fitted with iron, and he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for over 20 years. So they cried to the Lord for help. So the bad guys have Iron Age technology. Now that's relevant because Israel doesn't have any iron. Iron chariots are a problem. If you don't have iron, iron is the enemy you cannot defeat. So General Sisera is kind of like Iron Man, only he's a bad guy. Sisera is cruel, he's oppressive, he's vile in ways that you won't quite understand until we get to the end of this story. Israel's in trouble. Israel needs a champion, a hero. Israel needs somebody of tremendous strength, indomitable courage, unquenchable faith. Israel needs somebody who would rather die than grovel in the hill country of Israel. And there is such a hero. And he goes on to say, now Deborah, hey Debbie, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their dispute settled. Well, she sent for Barak. Now, this is very interesting. Israel is being led in this major crisis by a woman, Debbie. I wonder, I wonder how she responded when God called her. I wonder if any part of her background and culture internally said, oh, no, God, I can't do that. That's for boys. And God says, I know what I'm doing. I made women just like I made men. And I'm not calling your husband to do this. I'm not calling Gideon to do it. I'm not calling Joshua. I'm not calling Samson. Not now. I'm calling you, old Debbie. You're the one I want. <clears throat> do you know God is calling you right now? Male or female, doesn't matter. God has a great battle for you to engage in. See, it may or may not look dramatic to anybody else. That's not none of their business, but it's there. I, I wonder what what you're saying to the call from God to your particular battle. We'll look at that in just a minute. God calls Deborah to be a warrior. So in the book of Judges, that's what those guys are. They're primarily warriors. But it's very interesting in this text, we're told she's also a prophet. Now, I agree, that was not normally the case. By the way, if God makes the rules, God can change them if he wants to. He can break them if he wants to, right? There's nothing you can do about it. A lot of people don't like women being mentioned in any kind of a major way, yet God doesn't seem to care what you think, and so he just does what he wants to do. So she's a great warrior leader, and she's also a great prophet. Not only that, she's the only judge in the book who actually settles disputes. Now, when we think of a judge, we think of Judge Judy. <laughs> Normally, we think of a courtroom, a figure in a robe. Well, that wasn't so much the case in this book, but it was for Deborah. She's the only one who, like Moses, where the people would bring their disputes, and Deborah settles them. So she's a warrior. She's a prophet. Now, we'll see how that plays out later on. And she's deciding their issues, their cases. She's a multitasker. My wife and I will sometimes talk about multitasking. Multitasking is a good thing, 
or not a good thing. That'll be our argument. I like single tasking, but my wife will say partly because that you're a man. You often have the luxury, unlike us women, of not having to multitask and then read the Bible. And according to the Bible, you may be right, dear, but don't let it go to your head. Okay. Anyway, we're told Deborah sends for Barak and Barak is the general in Israel. Okay. In the book of Judges, as often the case in these ancient literatures, still in our day, to send for somebody, to summon someone is the act of a person who's assuming authority, who's in power. Well, being a woman, you might expect Deborah to go to Barak and tactfully offer a suggestion, make him think it was his idea. You know how men are. But she doesn't do that. She's a formidable character. She tells old Barak to take 10,000 soldiers to the Kishon River. That's a dried up riverbed. And she says to him, General Sisera will be there. Evil iron man with his 900 evil iron chariots. But don't worry, General Barak, because God has told me God will deliver Sisera into Barak's hands. And there's that word again, hands. Now, the audience would be kind of loving this that's reading this. And the audience would expect, of course, for Barak, Israel's general, he's going to be the hero. This is going to be the moment when Thor picks up his hammer and shouts, game on. But Barak doesn't say that, game on. He says something nobody would be expecting from a military leader. So it says, Barak said to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Really? A girl? A girly girl? Girls can't fight. There are whole books by Christian authors in our day who say boys are made by God to be warriors and girls are made by God to be beauties that boys fight to rescue. It just turns out the Bible's not one of those books. <laughs> Sorry. He'll just upset you. So he says, Deborah says to him, Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. That word hands again. Now, in any great action story, and you all know this, the final showdown has to be between the hero and the villain. The good guy, the bad guy. Batman versus the Joker. David versus Goliath. Superman has to be the one to get rid of Lex Luthor, not Lois Lane, for crying out loud. Lois Lane is supposed to be the rescuee, not the rescuer. But here in this story, Barak is not going to be the hero at all. In fact, the hero is going to be a woman. And to all the listeners, they would expect that that hero is going to be Deborah. So Barak calls the troops together. Deborah goes up with him, just as he asked her. And the armies are in place. The battle's about to begin. Everybody's waiting for this moment. It's like we're watching a movie. And this is the big climactic battle. And everybody is paused with bated breath because it's going to be good. It's going to be a huge battle. And the bad guys are going to get what's coming to them. Blood, guts, gore, spears, horses, maiming, gouging, beheading, and death. Except that's not what happened. Now, they all know it's coming, but it doesn't. So here's the next line in the story. Now, get this one. Now, Heber, the Kenite, 
pitched his tent by the great tree. And the audience, like me reading that, is thinking, who in the world cares about whoever Hebner, the Kenite is, and why he's pitching his tent somewhere? What's that got to do with anything? And the story gets even stranger. There's a battle. Israel wins the battle against General Sisera. But the battle hardly gets described in Scripture at all. In fact, it's not till the next chapter, chapter 5, until what is called the Song of Deborah, that we find out God sent a rainstorm, and it flooded that riverbed, the Kishon River, and the iron chariots are up the creek, literally. They're in mud. They're worthless. And so what he was so proud of, this General Sisera, is now a liability instead of an asset with the flood and the mud. And the bad guys lose. The good guys win. And that's what happens, but it hardly gets even mentioned or described here. To make matters worse, General Sisera, who's this arch villain in this piece, the bad guy, he gets away from this, this devastating loss on foot, and he comes to the tent, to the tent of Jael, who is the wife of that guy, Heber, the Kenite, another woman in this story of great battles. Now, the Kenites were not part of Israel. They were not considered good guys. They were tent dwellers. They were considered nomads. Our word would be something like gypsies. They, they were blacksmiths, which means they would be the ones who made the iron chariots that were being used by General Sisera against Israel and, and by all the bad guys. This, this tribe had an alliance with the bad guys. And Jael the wife of Heber says to this wicked old general Sisera, come, my Lord, come right in my tent. Don't be afraid. And the general expects he's entitled to her generosity. So he says, I'm thirsty. Please give me some water. Well, she actually gives him a skin of milk, which is an act of generosity. He goes in to lie down to go to sleep, and she covers him with a blanket. Now, if you ever watch movies, you know Anytime somebody goes to sleep and another person comes over and covers them with a blanket, that's always a tender moment. It's always done to demonstrate the compassion, the heart of the blanket spreader. So we understand this woman, J.L., whoever she is, has a tender heart. Sisera had said to J.L., okay, baby, you stand in the doorway of the tent. If somebody comes by and asks you, is anybody in there? You say no. Stand guard and lie for me if necessary. Because Sisera knows it would take a man, it would take a big man to bring him down. Sisera falls asleep. He's had his milk. He's covered up with his blankie. There's a lullaby playing. He's taking a nap. And J.L. goes on with his story. But J.L., Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground. Didn't see that one coming. This scrawny, little, unknown gypsy lady, not even a part of Israel, picks up the mighty hammer. Thor turns out to be a girl. Who knew? She picks up a tent peg and drives the nail into the evil general's temple through his skull, into his brain, clear out the back of his skull, and all the way into the ground. 
I mean this in the most literal thing. She nails him. <laughs> and this is in the Bible. In case you're wondering how serious this injury might have been, the text tells us she drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. No kidding. Maybe the three most unnecessary words in the Bible, and he died. In case anybody missed it, the next verse, Barak comes by the tent, and Jael invites him into her tent. And it says, so he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. So in case somebody wasn't paying attention, here's what we read in the next chapter in this poetic summary that's called the Song of Deborah. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Her hand reached the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. There he lay at her feet. <laughs> Where he sank, there he fell dead. If anybody's unclear on what happened to old Sisera, he bought the farm. He bit the big one. He kicked the bucket. He, he cashed in his chips. He's worm food. He's taking a dirt nap. He's pushing up daisies. Elvis has left the building. You got it? Now, what a shock to Sisera because he knew it would take a mighty man to bring him down. And I think the last thing to enter his mind, other than the tent peg, was though he had been defeated by a woman, and not just a woman, J.L. is called in the Bible most blessed of women, and you have to understand the audience is thrilled. This is a dark story. This is a bloody story, and the audience is cheering because evil doesn't win, because the injustice of the powerful doesn't have the last word, because for all of the darkness and ambiguity, there's a moral arc to the universe. And if you want to know how Sisera's oppression was, we get a little glimpse of it at the end of chapter 5, Deborah's Song. It's thought to be one of the oldest passages in the Old Testament. She imagines what happened back at Sisera's home when he doesn't come back. So she creates this little fictional moment where Sisera's mom, this is the general's mom, is waiting, looking out the window for her son to come back home. But he doesn't come. And one of the servants says to her, Sisera and the boys must be enjoying the plunder of winning the war as they always do. Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man. A woman or two for each man. That's how Sisera rolls. The act of assaulting innocent women who are made and loved by God has been a frequent part of war from the beginning of time. And it still goes on in our day, in our enlightened world. Scholar Mark Thompson said, sexual assault continues to be used as a strategic tool of war and genocide. He writes, 80% of all refugees and displaced people of war are women, a woman or two for each man. These were real people who lived thousands of years ago with real daughters and sisters and moms. In the Hebrew, it's even more graphic. It literally translates a womb or two for each man, just the body part, a womb or two for each man. That's what sin does. That's what evil does. 
And that's what this guy Sisera and his sons repeatedly do. That's part of what God was saving his people from. And that's why the people are cheering. Not this time, Sisera. So then the land had peace for 40 years. Now this is just one story of many stories that would come to involve exile and suffering over which God would show Israel and humanity that our real battle is fought most often with prayer and suffering love, not tent pegs and hammers. But the darkness of this world and the battle goes on. Unless you think the age of heroes has passed, the need for heroes has not passed. And can I say maybe God's calling you to be a Deborah? A, you know, a Christian scholar named Elaine Stokey. She wrote a book called Scars Across Humanity, Understanding and Overcoming Violence Against Women. And this is our world today, not Deborah's. Acts of violence to women aged between 15 and 44 across the globe produce more deaths, more disability, and mutilation than cancer, malaria, and traffic accidents combined. From selective abortion to domestic abuse to genital mutilation to sexual assault, it is epidemic in our world and embedded deeply in our cultures. In 2017, allegations about the abuse of power by a man named Harvey Weinstein to intimidate and violate and silence young women started a movement, not yet who has a resolution in sight, and an actress named Alyssa Milano asked those who had experienced sexual assault to use the hashtag MeToo. And within minutes, social media was flooded with millions of story, every one of them with a name and a face behind every one of them. Now, you'd think, I mean, it just would occur, that the church ought to be the greatest champion for women in the world, but often you'd be wrong. A study cited by Elaine Storkey found that 95% of Christian women who go to Christian churches say they have never heard a sermon declaring that abuse is wrong. Sometimes the church has been worse than silent. There was a prominent church leader who said he believed if a woman is being physically attacked or abused by her husband, the woman should remain in the home and submit to further violence. You have got to be out of your stinking mind. Are you kidding me? That is not biblical. That is not godly. That's not Christ-like. That is not God's will. That is not Jesus. And if you're in a marriage or relationship and there's physical abuse and you're the victim of that, get out. Get safe. It is not right. Violence against victims is evil and wrong. And the abuse of power for sexual gratification is evil and wrong. It's against God's will, and the church ought to be the first and the loudest to say so. You do not stay. There, many women have lost their lives by staying in a relationship like that. So we live in a world of injustice and darkness and sin. And that's part of what the book of Judges paints in ways that make people very uncomfortable. The writers of Scripture intend for that to be the case. They wanted you to feel that. And they all agree that this, in this world, there's a great battle going on. I wonder what battle God's calling you to fight. It's probably not going to involve a hammer and a tent peg, 
Probably not. God, God was just on a long journey to teach the human race about the real battle. And it took a long time in exile and suffering. And it reached its climax centuries later with a man named Jesus, who, by the way, freely laid aside his superpowers. And a big Roman soldier picked up a hammer and a nail and drove a nail through each one of those hands. And there's that little image of hands again. Because the real battle was won by nail-scarred hands on a cross. Jesus won that battle, not by inflicting violence and hate, not the way we think our action movies are going to be won, but by bearing violence and love. Now, that's a story. His father raised him on the third day, of course, and now we who follow Jesus are part of that battle scene. If you follow him, you're part of that battle. It wages out there. It wages in here, the battle between good and evil inside every one of us. And Paul put it like this, for our battle is not against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy, but against the rulers and authorities, principalities and powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil. See, they are real. They are iron chariots, and you can't defeat them on your own, neither can I. So what battle is Jesus causing you to fight? Maybe your battle is against an addiction, and that's dark. I know there's darkness there. Maybe God's calling you to fight a battle against depression or anxiety. Some of the greatest heroes I know and admire and love are fighting that battle, and nobody outside knows that but God. Maybe you're fighting to save a marriage or to reconcile a relationship with your child. Maybe God's calling you to stand with the most vulnerable in our community for people who are experiencing homelessness and so often in our culture, the shame that goes with it or for frightened children in abusive situations or for the unborn or for veterans in a hospital whom everybody has forgotten. What you need to know when you're called to that battle is that you don't fight it alone. There's a wonderful ending to this story. Judges 4 tells the story, and Judges chapter 5 is called the Song of Deborah. By the way, guess who wrote the Song of Deborah? Thank you. It's not a trick question. Deborah, Deborah. The 9 o'clock didn't get it, but you got it, okay? Uh, you, that, that would be Deborah. And, and Deborah is a woman, shall we remember? And it's the fifth chapter of Judges. In other words, it's part of the Bible. In other words, a part of the Bible was written by a woman named Deborah. It's called the Song of Deborah. And you understand when it says song in your Bible, this is not a musical song. It's a theological reflection. It's not a hit tune for the radio like, oh, Sisera is dead. They nailed him in his head. It's not that kind of a song. It's an expression of theological reflection to reveal the deep spiritual truth about what's been going on in the world. And this is what Deborah is saying in this song of Deborah. Here's what it was. She said, it was God who fought the battle. It was God who gave the victory. The mountains quaked before the God, the Lord of Israel. So the final words of Deborah chapter 5 are, may all who love the Lord be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Not may all who sit in powerful offices with great titles. Not may all who drive luxurious cars and live in giant homes. Not may all who command vast amounts of wealth. No, no, no. 
there's another kingdom. But may all who love the Lord be like the sun when it rises in its strength. See, for God loves to use people who our world thinks are marginal. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. That's good news for most all of us. God can use anybody, anywhere, in any situation you're in, in any circumstances that you happen to be in. God is bigger than any old General Sisera. He's bigger than his chariots of iron. He's bigger than your addiction. He's bigger than your failure. He's bigger than your disease. He's bigger than your problem. He's bigger than your oppression. He's bigger than injustice, bigger than evil. And he'll give you courage if you ask, and he'll give you wisdom if you ask, and he'll give you love if you ask, and forgiveness if you ask. See, there's a great battle, and this is your day, my day. You don't fight alone, so show up. Be a hero today and fight the battle because God will use your weakness and cover it with his strength. That way he gets the glory. Let him be glorified in your life. Don't draw back and say, I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified. Hundreds have done that before you and God used them all. God can use a woman. God can use a little heathen pagan woman. God can use what you think God won't use. All you got to do is say, I yield. Lord, help me. That's not a hard prayer. Lord, help me. I was asked by somebody outside the church if God would help them, although they don't go to church. And I said, he's a God of grace and mercy. Call on him. He'll draw you to himself. You call on him. He'll show himself strong in order to draw you to him. Of course he will. Of course he will. Think of all the people Jesus touched, healed, delivered, who weren't, by our term, Christian. God's bigger than most people think and more gracious than most people think. And he just loves to show up tough and strong when you're pitiful and weak so that he gets all the glory. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.